It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. We just had the first several-inch snowfall event in New York City in over two years this last week, and many of us were very excited about it, including myself. But forecasting this event was not an easy task, and the information leading up to the event was confusing and in some cases changed drastically 24 hours before the storm began moving up to the Northeast Coast. Snow is one of the hardest things to predict when it comes to the weather. But my next guest loves that challenge. Tom Nizzle has been fascinated with snow since his childhood days in Buffalo, New York. Coming from one of the snowiest places on Earth, he developed a passion for the winter season and all things related to frozen precipitation in his 40-plus year career. Tom joined Fox Weather in December of 2022 as our winter storm specialist, and we are so happy to have him. Please welcome Tom Nizzle to the Janice Dean podcast. Tom Nizzle, you made the Dean's list. (laughs) I guess so. That that is wonderful. Once in my life, I've made it. (laughs) Oh, stop it. I I don't believe it for a second. Were you not like the smartest kid in your class? Not quite, but I got to hang around with a lot of smart kids, and that was good. (laughs) When did your love of weather happen? Oh, my, like most uh, weather geeks, it was as a child. I was born and raised in Buffalo, New York, uh, in one of the snowiest areas in the entire United States. And I had a love of snow and weather overall uh, from when I was about that age. So you you can remember, listen, I grew up in Canada and I remember snowstorms where I would wake up and the snow would be as high as my rooftop. Yeah, and I, you know, I I grew up as a kid, uh, a snow-loving kid in the decade of the 60s, and there were three or four winters during that time frame in the Northeast that were extremely snowy. And so that's the memory that's cemented into my head. That's how I remember winters. Oh, me too. And and I get excited about it. I mean, listen, you are our winter specialist, um, but there is something very special about snow. What do you think it is? Oh, to me, it's it's otherworldly. And I like to tell the story about bringing people up from the tropical regions of this globe to experience winter, the winter landscape, falling snowflakes, all of that for the first time in their lives. They have to think that they're on another planet. It's so true. Now, let's talk about this last storm system that brought you know, three inches to New York City, which is nothing to sneeze at. But for a city that hasn't had snow in two years, over two years, this was a pretty big event for us. What do you attribute that to? Well, it typically has to do with the large scale weather patterns that develop on a seasonal basis across North America. But what's interesting and from uh, the meteorological chat that I see with all of my colleagues is New York City and that area around the city itself seems to be in this snow drought compared to even areas close by over the past three years or so. And it's it's really we're trying to get our head around this. uh, what is actually happening to cause that? Is it just coincidence? Well, certainly there's been 
in in uh, overwhelming pattern that has been much warmer than normal in the New York City area and the Northeast in particular for the past couple of winters, right? Um, and I always say it takes two to tango. If you want snow, you need two ingredients. You need moisture and you need cold air. Now this winter, it's been moist. It's been very wet across the Northeast. Uh, through the From December 1st through now, the departure in precipitation has been five to seven inches above normal. So we've gotten all the moisture we want. We just can't get the cold air down into this part of the country, the Northeast, when we get these storms that track through. Mm -hmm. But this one had dynamic cooling. So tell me, (laughs) tell me about this incredible phenomenon. Yes, the magic of the atmosphere is fascinating when you when you look at it. Um, Dynamic curling refers to a process where essentially you're not bringing cold air in from north from Canada or places like that to produce the snow. The weather system itself is so strong, it cools the atmosphere above it. And there's some complicated processes, but to try to boil it down uh, quickly, essentially you get very strong upward motion in these storms. And when air rises, it cools very rapidly. That's part one. It cools the atmosphere down. So now that column of air above you cools, snow falls, and it gets down to about three, 5,000 feet above the ground. It's still above freezing. So the snowflakes melt. Ironically, when you change snow to liquid, that takes energy to do that process. And that energy comes from robbing heat in the atmosphere. So the process of snow melting as it falls actually cools the atmosphere. And we saw that the temperature in Central Park the night before the snow began was in the low 40s. As soon as the snow began, the temperature dropped through the upper 30s down to the mid 30s and the low 30s in a period of about four hours. Mm. So we actually watched that process right in front of our eyes. Mm -hmm. This storm was interesting because basically 24 to 36 hours beforehand, we were thinking, okay, a slushy inch or two. And then all of a sudden, We saw that process and the National Weather Service was like, you know, there's going to be some dynamic cooling going on. We maybe need to up our snowfall totals. You know, people give local forecasters a tough time. I mean, I always say I feel blessed that I'm not a local forecaster because we don't want to get it wrong. That's the last thing we want. But these guys have to take it on the chin because in some cases you're doing, you know, you're now casting, you're actually forecasting as it happens. (laughs) That's correct. Janice, weather (laughs) forecasting is a humbling profession. I work the, uh, forecast desk for 25 years up in Buffalo, New York at the National Weather Service office there. And every storm brought its own issues. It is not an exact science. And in this case here, two days before the event, we were looking at a heavy swath of snowfall about 100 to 150 miles north and west of where it actually came down. Uh, And there were two factors that came into play to develop this storm up in the atmosphere. One was a storm system itself going across the Southern Plains. The computer models had a pretty good handle on that, but they were treating this as a little stronger system. And uh, in effect, the system was just a little weaker and faster moving as it slid across the plains. The second feature was 
an upper level trough in southern Canada. These two features help to modulate each other. And early on in the forecast process, the computer models didn't have a good handle on that northern system. They weren't sampling it well enough to really identify it. And as a result of that, they were keeping this band of snow further north. It wasn't until 12 to 24 hours before the actual event that the that Mother Nature kind of showed its cards and the models were able to lock into a forecast that was much closer to what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I saw a couple of local forecasters, Eric Fisher being one of them um, from Boston, talking about that busted forecast or, you know, the the forecast that they thought they were going to have and how the, the totals went up. And I appreciate that, you know, as a meteorologist, I think the audience does, too, you know, because I don't think they understand. And what you just explained, all the dynamics and the variables uh, that have to go into forecasting an event like this. I think there needs to be more of that. Well, there certainly does. There certainly needs to be more education because there are new processes and technologies that have come on board from a forecast process that help define the uncertainty within these storms. And it is something called probabilistic forecasting it the chances that something is going to occur when you dig deeper into the pages of the national weather service offices you will see these forecasts the forecast uh, for new york city even 24 hours before the event was going for about an inch of snow uh, in and around the big apple itself but there were probabilities chances low chances albeit but chances in about the 20 to 30 percent range so two out of ten times something like this would happen you actually could get more like five to eight inches of snow when people look at these probabilities and if they have a basic understanding of how that works they can get a better idea of what the odds are that you could go from one end to the other in snowfall. And departments of transportation, school districts, these types of entities use these probabilistic forecasts these days to give themselves an idea of when they pull the trigger on maybe canceling school, maybe putting more trucks out onto the streets before these events occur. So we've come a long way, but boy, we've got a long way to go yet. Mm -hmm. And snow really is one of the hardest things to forecast. Oh, my gosh. You know, I've worked with uh, specialists over the years, tropical specialists, summer weather specialists and that. And um, we always joke back and forth as colleagues. I tell them, look, all you have to do is predict where the rain is going to fall. When you get into the wintertime, you not only have to predict where the precipitation comes down, you have to predict four potentially different types of precipitation, rain, sleet, freezing rain, and snow. And by the way, they can all occur within a band of about 50 miles. So it is a big challenge. Tell me about those differences uh, in precipitation when it comes to that wintry mix, quote unquote. Yeah, and that all has to do with the structure of the temperature above us in the atmosphere, that column of air above us. It isn't in a typical atmosphere, the air cools as you go up, it gets colder. You look into mountainous areas, that's where the snow is the heaviest because it's coldest there. But each weather system has its own personality. And within that column of air, as these rotating weather systems, these big cyclonic features, low pressure systems, move from the south up to the north, they can actually bring 
little slices or little layers of warmer air up above that cold air at the surface. And if you get a layer of warmer air in the wintertime, snowfall starts up high in the atmosphere. It can drop through that layer and melt. And then as it gets back into the cold air, it can either refreeze into little tiny particles of ice called sleet, or if that cold air of uh, layer of air is very shallow, when those snowflakes melt, they then hit a shallow layer of cold air. There's not enough time for them to freeze, but everything down on the ground, all those surfaces below 32 degrees, when they get that liquid precipitation to hit those surfaces, it immediately freezes and changes into this dangerous layer of ice. And that is one of the biggest challenges in forecasting winter weather is where that type of precipitation is going to occur. Mm -hmm. It really is. It's it's incredible how I, I sometimes I wonder how they do it, especially the meteorologists that have to help out school districts or sports complexes or, you know, government officials to let them know when they have to shut down the roads. That is a tremendously stressful situation. Well, it it, it is. And again, with my uh, decades of experience in the National Weather Service, one of our most important jobs, and it's really come to the forefront in the last decade, is what we refer to as decision support services. We are there to help guide um, departments of transportation, counties, cities, those government entities on how the winter weather is going to unfold. And typically, uh, National Weather Service offices will conduct conference calls with these entities to brief them before these events occur. And in um, most cases, they are well prepared for all of the potential impacts we can see from these storms. But again, Mother Nature holds the cards here and can throw some great curveballs at us. And so it's not a cut and dry process. And we'll be back with more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. How do you think uh, AI will affect our forecasting, good or bad? Oh, I think it's going to be uh, a, a big improvement in the ability to provide forecasting because it is going to do a lot of the work uh, that typically has to be managed by the human element within this forecast process. Now, AI is in its infancy right now, and a lot of what AI is adding to the meteorological process is more of a basic uh, process that artificial intelligence and machine learning will provide in all of these different areas of science and, and, and even society. But it is expanding very, very rapidly now, and it's being refined. And there are many research projects going on uh, now within the meteorological community. Uh, a lot of this was talked about at the latest American Meteorological Society meeting um, about how AI and machine learning is going to be incorporated into this process with basic computer modeling to advance the field of uh, weather forecasting. I, I'm I'm really excited to see how this is going to unfold. Mm -hmm. But I feel like we also need 
people like yourself who have had you know decades of experience that you know even though the computer modeling is good it's getting better we have you know this technology there is something to be said for that human memory or the the moment of experiencing something and going but wait a minute i remember a snowstorm back when and we had these types of dynamics and this is how it unfolded oh that's uh, there's certainly all i I'll use the term always with quotes around it, but there will always be a place for the human uh, mind, the human brain, the human process uh, within that forecast process. Uh, First and foremost, in my mind, is communication. And you and I know this all too well. When I was a uh, intern forecaster back in the National Weather Service decades ago, I remember my lead forecaster looked at me one day and he said, listen, young man, you could be a PhD and you can write the best forecast you have ever written, the best of anybody in the world. But if you can't communicate that forecast to the public, it's not worth the paper it's written on. Mm. And that has always stuck with me. The ability for us as weather forecasters and presenters and broadcast meteorology in particular to communicate the uncertainties, to communicate how the storms are going to unfold. All of that information to the public who really doesn't have the time to go to school and get a PhD in meteorology, I think that is extremely important. That's number one in the human machine mix that we see now and going into the future. But there's a lot more from there as well. Amen, my friend. I agree. Uh, I've met a real a lot of smart smart people, um, but like yourself, you know, you try to explain it to the general you know population. This is this is really tough science stuff that it requires a lot of crazy math and uh you know technical terms and i really do appreciate your delivery like for you to you know explain what dynamic cooling is you know the general population understands that and that is definitely an art form and and a gift that you have well again it's it's taken decades (laughs) of that and um uh you know i like you and and most scientists you know we've had this in bred curiosity since we were little kids. I not only like winter weather, I love nature. I live in a place now where I'm out hiking in the woods every day. And my curiosity on everything from nature just continues to expand. And so from a meteorological standpoint, part of what is in our DNA is not only to experience it, but to share that enthusiasm with the public. And that's where I have so much fun when I'm on air uh, talking about the latest winter storm. My winter expertise is lake effect snow, those types of things. I also love to photograph snow crystals. Mm. And so um, I enjoy even that. It's that kid that continues to come out at us uh, through all the decades of our experience. Lake effect snow is your specialty. That is one crazy phenomenon, my friend. Oh, it's I I could talk about that for hours, but simply put to, you know, I lived in a place where we received on average 150 inches of snow each winter. And, uh, uh, you know, I could be in my yard where there's three feet of snow and then travel 10 to 15 miles north of me to where the grass 
is green uh, from one of these narrow, intense snow bands. Uh, it is the most intense snow on a small scale that you will see on the face of the Earth. And the Great Lakes are these great natural laboratories to study that produce this. And it doesn't only occur in the Great Lakes. I love to watch the sea effect snows that occur off the Sea of Japan around the world. And um, at the latitudes where we can get these conditions, they do occur around the entire globe. But Buffalo, New York, they're the heart of the heaviest lake effect snow that you will see in a populated area in the entire world. Wow. What do you listen? I went up and saw Punxsutawney a couple weeks ago, and he, he prognosticated that we were in for an early spring. What is your thought on that forecast? Well, at the outset, I'm going to tell you, and this may be an easy out for me, but I am not a proponent of seasonal forecasting when we get into the details. Mm. Um, I still think there's a tremendous amount of research going on that has improved seasonal forecasting. But time and time again, when these types of very complicated forecasts are boiled down to the public, it's boiled down way too simply to show the public what the uncertainties are uh, with that type of forecasting. That being said, I'm looking more at sub-seasonal timeframes going into the latter part of January and early March. I correspond often with a, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Judah Cohen uh, at AER Research, who's a, uh, probably the, the best seasonal forecaster out there right now with the new technologies he uses. They're looking at what may be another uh, big cool down in the latter part of January and early March uh, across the eastern U.S., eastern part of North America. And, you know, for those of us who are winter weather lovers, uh, we still keep our fingers crossed. We may see one or two more good storms, but we are in getting toward the latter part of February now. The sun angles are getting quite high. So the chances of getting something like this to stick around for a long period of time certainly are going to quickly go by the wayside. Mm. I like the way you, you think. I mean, forecasting past five days is very, very tough. And to give a seasonal forecast, you, hurricane forecasts, I understand. It's almost like this is your PSA to get ready if you live along the coast or an area that can be affected by hurricanes. I understand why they do that. Um, but to be able to forecast something past seven days is is pretty tough. So I, I concur with you there. You know, you can look back at history and weather trends and jet streams and all that, but we really don't know. <laughs> Well, and, and to the, the point of the researchers and, and what they have uh, been able to uncover and, and advance with in seasonal forecasting, we had an El Nino. We've had an El Nino set up over the uh, uh, globe, the equatorial Pacific for this winter that typically produces certain types of weather across the United States, generally milder weather. And we have had that across the U.S., generally drier weather as you get into the mid-Atlantic and the east. It's been anything but dry. Mm. In fact, it's been exceptionally wet. And so these large-scale features on a global basis, El Nino, uh, the polar vortex, uh, ice cover in the Arctic, snow cover in Siberia, the NAO, <laughs> I can go on and on and on, um, uh, the MJO and other factors 
all operate to modulate the weather on a very large scale over different time frames. And the key to being able to improve that forecasting is how to understand how all of these factors come together to produce what occurs over a typical season in different parts of the globe. Mm, so well said. Thank you so much for being on the program. I, I admire you. I have for many years. You do a tremendous job. Um, and, and how's Fox Weather treating you, by the way? Oh, my gosh. It's been so much fun. Let me tell you, um, to be there with all those enthusiastic meteorologists um, who get to geek out like I do in a very, very professional organization. Uh, when I was first introduced to Fox Weather and their launch uh, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, there's always trepidations with going into a business like this. And let me tell you, they have done it right. Uh, the people that they have there in all levels of support at Fox Weather are absolutely the best. And and I'm having a, a just a, a wonderful time uh, being able to work with them. And I hope I can continue that uh, for another few years. Okay. Well, you're doing great work, my friend. Do you still have your blog, by the way? Yes, I do. Um, I, I uh, blog once in a while with that. But again, being on Fox Weather now, um, I'm, I'm kind of uh, uh, involved with a lot of what goes on with day-to-day -day weather. So I get back to that once in a while. And and you'll see my blog. Um, it's uh, it's allweather.blogspot.com. And just Google that. And you'll see some of my recent articles. The uh, Last one I did was a review of that amazing snowstorm in Buffalo, New York, back mm. in the Christmas of 2022. Um, that was a really tough storm. Yes. And uh, I, I got an interesting article about that. OK, good. Yeah. You know, government officials could take a, a page out of what meteorologists do, and that is if there's a forecast and a storm that is particularly bad, really any forecast. Um, we will always do an after action review. We go back and try to find out what went wrong so that we do better the next time. And for that storm in Buffalo, which we all remember, killed many people. I remember driving home for Christmas and we had to avoid that storm because we go see my mom and we have to drive through Buffalo. And we were watching the forecast very carefully. Um, but that's a good example of whether people really as a community wanting to do better the next time. And I think that yeah. a lot of people could learn from that. Well, when we come, if, if I get to come back and uh, be on the blo uh, block with you again, uh, or on the podcast with you again, um, I've done a, an article on what defines a weather catastrophe mm. and what separates that from typical garden variety high impact weather. And maybe we could address that if I come back. Again. I Well, that is a guarantee, my friend. That's going to happen. So stay tuned. I'm going to give you a call and we'll set that up. Sounds great. Uh, Tom Nizzle, thank you so much, my friend. Oh, it's great to be here. And thank you for having me. And think snow, everybody. <laughs> yes, I, I'm, I'm uh, team snow as well. Thanks to Tom for coming on today. Isn't he awesome? His passion for the weather is infectious. And I know he inspires all of us here at Fox News and Fox Weather. P.S. I'm really hoping we get more snow in the forecast the next couple of weeks. But that's just me. You can catch Tom on Fox Weather as a contributor and our winter storm specialist. You can also see Tom blog about his weather passion at itsallweather.blogspot.com. 
And if you don't have it already, I highly recommend downloading the Fox Weather app. It's easy to use and you can plan your upcoming trips and have several cities to choose from when you're looking for a forecast. The 3D radar is awesome and you can watch the broadcast streaming live as well. It's foxweather.com. Thank you to all of my listeners. If you have someone you think should make the Dean's List, let me know at Janice Dean on Twitter or Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Or you can rate this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.